you are able, please stand with your Bibles open to Psalm 133 for our reading in preparation for the message today. We'll read Psalm 133 and Acts 15, 36 through 41. Psalm 133. Let us pray. Most gracious God and Father, we are now to be reading your word according to your commandment publicly and preaching it, heralding it forth according to your commandment and will and blessing. Oh, gracious Lord, grant us ears to hear, hearts to believe, wills to obey. Give us each the grace to take full responsibility for what we will hear. And Father, help us by your Holy Spirit endure in the hearing. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Turning to Acts chapter 15, we come to the end of our reading in this chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Small paragraph at the very end of chapter 15, beginning at verse 36, page 924. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is God's word. Please be seated. Beloved, it is a little startling that in the passage before us, we have the final report on the work of Barnabas in the church of Jesus Christ. After this passage in Acts 15, Barnabas does not appear again in the book of Acts. As Calvin said, he is buried here. He has been, up until now, a leading figure in the advance of Christ's kingdom of grace. Barnabas and Paul have been tight, two peas in a pod, side by side, proclaiming the gospel together in Jewish synagogues, in Gentile cities, all around the border of the Mediterranean Sea. We first met Barnabas in the city of Jerusalem, 
He was a member of the earliest church there. Acts 4 verse 37 tells us that Barnabas sold a piece of land and he brought the proceeds, the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. That was our introduction to Barnabas, a godly man. Then Acts 9 verse 27 tells us Barnabas is the one who vouches for Paul and introduces Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem. Then Acts 11 verse 22 tells us Barnabas was sent by the Jerusalem church to visit the church in Antioch, Syria. Barnabas was chosen. Why? Because Acts 11.24 says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith. But once he got to Antioch, Barnabas kept thinking about Paul. So Barnabas travels from Antioch to Tarsus to get Paul and recruits Paul, and he brings Paul back with him to Antioch to serve Jesus there. A little later, the two men travel together to Jerusalem, where they deliver a gift, financial relief, for the Jerusalem church suffering the great famine. When they come back from Jerusalem to Antioch together, they are newly commissioned again by that same church in Antioch to go on what is called the first missionary journey. And we have been observing all of their travels on that first missionary journey for the last couple months. Paul and Barnabas sailed to Cyprus, where they saw the conversion of Sergius Paulus in the coastal city of Paphos. Then they sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. Then they walked north to Antioch of Pisidia, a different Antioch, where they saw many Gentiles converted. Then they walked east to Iconium, then to Lystra, and it was in Lystra where the people thought Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. And it was in Lystra where Paul was stoned to death. But after Paul got back up, they walked to Derby. Then they backtracked through all those cities again, going down to Perga. They sailed home to Antioch of Syria together. Then they were commissioned again together to go to Jerusalem to help resolve the matter of circumcision and salvation, which is the matter that started Acts chapter 15. Now, in all that travel, I left out one important detail. I wonder if you caught it. When Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem with that gift for famine relief, they brought someone back with them to Antioch. They brought back John Mark. They brought back this young man who had grown up in Jerusalem, who was Barnabas's cousin. And that little detail is in the very last verse of Acts 12. John Mark, as our reading shows, became the subject of a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. So sharp was their disagreement Paul and Barnabas, the inseparable two, were separated. And they go in different directions. Paul goes north by land into Syria and Cilicia. Barnabas goes west by sea to Cyprus because of this sharp disagreement over John Mark. 
Now, there is no indication at all that each of these men takes a different gospel with them. No. They both serve the one Lord, Jesus Christ. They are both united in the one message of salvation, but they are not united all the way down. They are not united through and through, heart to heart. And from this point on, Barnabas quietly disappears from Luke's written record of the early church. Does this mean Barnabas became a scoundrel? No. You see, none of you are in the early record of the church, and you're not scoundrels. And there were many godly people alive then in the churches that they are going to visit who never appear in the written record, who are not scoundrels. But let's be very honest. For someone once so prominent in the written record to disappear from the written record right here is no small matter. It is possible that Barnabas died right after this. It is possible Barnabas lived long after this, but was so upset by Paul that he refused to work alongside of him, or vice versa. Many things are possible, and it's a vanity to list them all. And it's a double vanity to think of them all long. Let us go by what is written. Let us go by what is written. I'm going to focus our attention on three things that are written about this matter. First, the disagreement itself. Second, the men of the disagreement. And third, the fallout or the fruit of the disagreement. First, the disagreement itself. This disagreement was about whether or not John Mark should be allowed to join Paul and Barnabas on the second missionary journey. That's what it was about. Barnabas wants to take John Mark. Paul says no, because John Mark had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. He had not gone with them to the work. John Mark had quit. John Mark had thrown in the towel. He had given up. And the details of it are in Acts 13. 13.5 says that when Paul and Barnabas first sailed to Cyprus, John Mark came along to assist them. But later, when they got to Pamphylia, Acts 13.13 says, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Calvin says this is like a man divorcing his wife. Why did John Mark quit? Well, we don't know precisely why. But we, know, we do know from our text that Paul did not think it was a good enough reason to quit. Paul regards John Mark's quitting as a significant defect. John Mark was unable to bear the sufferings required for the endurance of missionary service. That much we can say. Was he homesick for Jerusalem? His mother had a house there. Do you remember her? Her name was Mary. It was her house where the great large Bible study was happening the night the angel brought Peter out of prison 
and Peter got to the gate of her house and talked to a servant girl named Rhoda. That was John Mark's mother's house. Was he homesick? Did he miss his mother? Was he experiencing culture shock? Having gone with the two through Cyprus, was John Mark overwhelmed by the habits of pagans and by the worship of pagans? Was he frustrated by all the foot travel? Did his feet hurt? Bodily aches could be the issue. Did he have bad sleeping arrangements? Difficult weather. Paul writes about all of these things. Whatever it was, whatever it was, it was, according to the Apostle Paul, a defect not to be taken lightly, not to be forgotten easily. Paul does not want John Mark to be a weak link in their missionary plans. Rigor was required to go see all the churches. And Paul does not want John Mark to infect the brethren at those churches with his softness and his need for earthly comforts. Now Barnabas, of course, disagrees, and not a little. Barnabas is persuaded that John Mark should come, can come, and must come. Now John Mark is a close relative to Barnabas. Colossians 4.10 tells us, as I said, he's a cousin. But that is not the chief reason Barnabas wants to give John Mark a second chance. The chief reason Barnabas wants to give John Mark a second chance is that John Mark has already come back to them. Did you notice? He's not in Jerusalem, which is where he left for when he quit. Where is he? He has journeyed, John Mark has, to Antioch. He is standing right there presumably hearing this dispute. He is ready, John Mark. He is waiting, John Mark, to go on the new missionary journey. He has not disappeared into the world like one of Paul's other friends, Demas, does. Something has moved in the heart of John Mark to get up and get to the work. But the more Barnabas speaks of his persuasion to Paul, the more Paul speaks of not being persuaded to Barnabas. And they go back and forth until there is so much heat that the blade is too sharp. And instead of burning up together, they decide to part ways. So that's the disagreement itself. Now, the men of the disagreement. The men of the disagreement. Now, obviously, the men of this case are Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. But we aren't just to give attention to their names, right? We are to consider their character and their gifts. Fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, takes the most charitable view of this whole dispute that I can find in the scripture and in, in, in commentators. Exceedingly charitable is Chrysostom. He says, look how Luke has described the diverse gifts of these men. Barnabas, rich in tenderness and fatherly indulgence. The kind of man you want to have around in the church when you need a second chance. And Paul, rich in austerity and strictness. 
the kind of man you want to have around in the church when others keep settling for lower and lower standards. Two gifted men, gifted quite differently. All of the gifts are needed in the body of Christ. And there should be no doubt in our minds that when Barnabas sailed away with John Mark to Cyprus, that Barnabas improved his strictness in training John Mark. Though he was not persuaded by Paul, Barnabas heard Paul. And Paul, when he walked north with Silas, he no doubt improved his tenderness and his hopefulness for others in the church who were weak. Because though he was not persuaded by Barnabas, he heard Barnabas. And we see this maturity in Paul, this gospel maturity in Paul, in the dealing with Philemon and his runaway slave, Onesimus. Do you remember how Paul in Rome comes across this runaway slave and ends up sending him back, now that this man is a believer in Christ, back to his former master, Philemon? And Paul leans on Philemon. You want to read a letter of lean-on persuasion? Read the short letter of Philemon. And listen to Paul say to Philemon, in every way but a command, you must receive him not as a slave, but as a brother. It's a remarkable exposition of how the gospel impacts the most basic economical relationships we have with the world a slave and his master. I dare you to read it. Notice I didn't command. I learned that from Paul. (laughs) The Church of Jesus Christ does not need all of its leaders to be exactly alike. Now, we must be careful here, though. We must be careful and not fall into the trap of thinking that the true work of the risen Christ among us is always and only just a work of equalizing and balancing, as if equalizing and balancing were the true principles of the church. They are not. Christ himself is the true principle of the church. He is her living Lord. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. Christ himself resolves every dispute. He is not the great equalizer where he tries to make everybody feel like they have a part in the resolution. He himself resolves everything in truth or error, in right or wrong, because he is right always. He does not resolve all disputes by saying, Everyone is right in their own special way. Christ alone is right. And he will persuade us by drawing us ever near to him of what is right and eventually make us fully right in the constancy of his resurrection glory. So in this case, Christ very much wants Barnabas to continue to be the tender-hearted Barnabas that Barnabas is. But that does not mean Barnabas is just as right as Paul. Look again at what verse 40 says. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. 
Barnabas does not receive that prayer and that blessing of commendation. The text is silent because apparently the church was silent on Barnabas's plan. Yes, we ought to take this silence charitably and think the best we can think about Barnabas, but the Spirit is not silent about Paul. It is Paul who is sent with the blessing of Christ through his body, the Antioch Church. That blessing of Christ in verse 40 through the church, it is a kind of affirmation of Paul's overall position in this matter. We must see that as the blessing of Christ. The, the church has no authority to bless apart from Christ. He's the one who unbinds what we bind, or who binds what we bind and looses what we loose. They don't, we don't have willy-nilly authority. This blessing of the church is the blessing of Jesus Christ on Paul's ministry and Paul's decision to go without John Mark. And everything good that comes to John Mark, and a lot does, we'll get there, it could all have come to him even if Paul's way had prevailed. It would be wrong to say that only this good came to him because he went with tender-hearted Barnabas. Grace is greater than that. So, <clears throat> does all of this mean that Paul is without sin? That he receives the commendation? Of course it does not mean that. Now, the scriptures Paul wrote are without error. But the man himself was not without sin. We can agree with Calvin who said Paul should have been more courteous and should have given some kind of statement of forgiveness to John Mark. But with that said, we are right to regard Paul as being right, which in turn allows us to reflect once more on the error of Barnabas. The error of Barnabas here removes him from the written record of the Acts of the Apostles. This doesn't mean he fell away from Christ, but it does mean that a trivial matter, a trivial matter, greatly weakened the ministry of Barnabas. Now, this isn't Barnabas's first error. If you go to Acts, excuse me, if you go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, don't turn there now, but there Paul describes another error that Barnabas fell into, where he fell prey to the Judaizing influence that Peter had also fallen prey to. And Paul says, even Barnabas was persuaded for a while. But understand what's happened here. A trivial dispute has greatly weakened the ministry of Barnabas. Barnabas did not fall into sexual immorality. Barnabas did not return to the Judaizers. Barnabas did not commit murder in a rage of passion. Barnabas did not try to deceive the apostles about the value of the property he sold, like Sapphira did and Ananias. Barnabas got entangled in something much less weighty than all those things. He got entangled in his own tendency toward indulgence and leniency. The, Scots, the Scotsman Alexander McLaren said, most good men 
are in more danger from trivial faults than from great ones. Most good men are more in danger from trivial faults than great ones. Do not take out of the Spirit's mouth what it said about Barnabas, what he said about Barnabas. The Spirit said he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and great in faith. But here he gets entangled in a trivial matter. No man reaches the superlative degree of wickedness all at once. Few men spring from the height to the abyss in a moment. The erosive action of the sand of the desert is said to be gradually cutting off the sphinx's head. That's what sin does when it's small and trivial. Little things that we even pride ourselves on as part of our personality, and they soon go unguarded. And they end up turning out to entangling us in a great controversy. McLaren again, there is a microscopic weed that chokes canals and snowflakes make the sky as dark as an eclipse. Be on guard, beloved, from the trivial things. In fact, maybe even better said, beware of your strengths, your strongest virtues. Barnabas's commitment to his position in this dispute surely fit well with what he thought was a great virtue. That's not difficult to understand, is it? He's arguing for a position. He must have thought it was in accord with a great virtue that he was upholding. And which would that be? His reasonableness. His mercy. But let us remember, every virtue may run to an extreme and become a vice. Liberality is soon exaggerated into license. Firmness is soon exaggerated into stubbornness. Mercy into weakness. Gravity into severity. Tolerance into unstable convictions. Humility into hopelessness. And strong virtues unregulated, strong virtues unguarded, can deeply entangle us in a most trivial fight. So that's... So those are the men of the disagreement. Now for the fruit. What became of John Mark? Do you know? John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. John Mark was greatly recovered, greatly restored to useful service. Such is the ministry of Jesus Christ to all his dear elect children. Jesus came to John Mark again, and then Jesus came to John Mark again, and then Jesus came to John Mark again, and then it was Tuesday, and Jesus came to John Mark again. Jesus came to John Mark again and again and again, graciously, slowly, effectively defeating the sins of cowardice, and softness in John Mark. And we already see that that was happening and that there's John Mark in Antioch, ready to go. But listen, even Paul became persuaded that Jesus had come to John Mark again 
and again. In writing to the Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Mark is numbered among his fellow workers. Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Paul writing to Timothy, second letter, 4.11, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. 1 Peter 5.13, the Apostle Peter, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. It's pretty common to understand that Mark's gospel is written from sitting at the elbow of Peter. They spent so much time together. John Mark is recovered. And beloved, he is recovered in some way by both Paul and by Barnabas. Paul's strictness, Paul's refusal to let John Mark go so quickly on another missionary journey, properly helped John Mark repent. Paul's strictness helps John Mark properly condemn his poor behavior at Pamphylia. If everybody around John Mark was soft, John Mark's repentance would be very shallow. Barnabas's loving kindness, on the other hand, gave John Mark hope that Christ had not hardened against him. And I don't mean to suggest in any way that Paul is lacking loving kindness, but in this matter, the Lord put a bit of a spotlight on Barnabas's loving kindness, even if it was inordinate. Barnabas's loving kindness gives John Mark an invitation to seek reconciliation and return to the service of Christ. So there we have the, the facts of the disagreement, the men of the disagreement, the fruit of the disagreement, and now three fast points of application. Number one, we learn by this whole ordeal how we should both expect and not expect the church to be like Christ. Everything about this ordeal is a testimony to us <laughs> that the church is going to disillusion us with its disagreements, with its disputes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I believe, was right on the mark when he said that one of the first things Christ will do for you in discipling you is to disillusion you with his church on the earth so that you will not be disillusioned with its head in heaven, Jesus Christ himself. Now, of course, we are one with Christ. His life is our life. So at the same time that we are going to always see weakness in his body, we know that it's wrong and it should drive us to lament and to repent and to come to this table saying, oh Lord Jesus, feed us with your life. We should grieve these disputes. They are a testimony that we are not home yet, but so we shall be. Number two, by this whole ordeal, we learn how much we need Christ's death and life, even 
when we are greatly used of God. The apostles, entangled in sin and dispute, the apostles not able to bend and work together. How much we need the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Beloved, without Christ coming to us and forgiving our contumacious natures, our pugnacious natures, our warlike spirits, without Christ coming to us and constraining us and forgiving us, we would tear down the world. James 3 says so. The tongue sets the world on fire. It's the very fire of hell. It is Christ who has come and doused the heat, forgiven us for all the wars that we want to make, and then constraining us with his perfections and pouring into us his spirit. We are so wrong often and don't know it. We could never bear to go to worship if we knew how wrong we were about so many things, if we knew how far we were away from separating from everyone we know, if the argument were just rightly prepared and pitched at us, and then we would be just like the Pharisee who's praying up at the temple, Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men. No, you're not. You don't even know anyone because you've mowed them all down with sharp disagreements. Beloved, we are so wrong often. We need a savior. And he must fill the very frame of our vision and heart so that we can draw near to God, even in our great wrongness, and worship him and praise him and please him. We come to worship, praise, and please him through the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Not because we are right, on everything. Lastly, this whole ordeal shows us how much we should be longing for the appearing of Christ. Seeing things like this that separate and divide brethren should make us hunger for the day that we are never divided from our brethren. They will never be divided from Christ. Yet we often have to divide from them. This should make us hunger for his appearing when he will fix us all in the constancy of his glory, in the perfection of his mind and will. And we shall abound in the peace of the brethren. And Psalm 133 will be fully and completely fulfilled in us, for it is already now fulfilled in our head. Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this lesson today from your word and how it humbles us, how it indeed challenges us to seek Christ ever more dearly. Oh, Father, forgive us for all the ways we have brought sin to disagreements with our brethren personally, individually, corporately, ecclesiastically, among churches and denominations. 
Forgive us, Lord, for the sin that we have brought. And Lord, we pray that by the rule and reign of your Son, who triumphs over our sin and our misery, that the things that we touch to harm, he would touch to good and to heal. And that the healing that took place in John Mark's life would take place in all of us. We pray this today to your praise, to your honor, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.